Welcome to the Calvary Church Podcast. We're glad that you are here and that you can be a part of a recent service at TCC. So let's join the service, which is already underway, and listen to the message. We've been looking the last three weeks, and this is the fourth lesson of four lessons, that we've been talking about the Gospels, the Gospels. And this is the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Specifically, we have used a uh, resource called the Handbook on the Gospels. This is the resource. As I mentioned last week, if you end up taking Purpose Institute, you will probably come across this book as it's a required book that you will read. But uh, it uh, has provided some uh, good content and uh, uh, some good resources for us during this series. We have specifically looked at each author and their unique perspective and approach to telling the story of Jesus Christ on the earth. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are really the foundation of our faith in Jesus Christ. And we have uh, not put our faith in men. We're not putting our faith in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John we're putting our faith in Jesus Christ as they wrote under the inspiration uh, of the Holy Ghost on the life of Jesus Christ and what we should know about it. And so we are going to continue tonight looking at uh, the Gospels, and we know that the Gospels give us four perspectives, four perspectives of Jesus Christ. John's viewpoint on Jesus in his writings was to make sure that everybody knew that Jesus was God. Everyone say, Jesus is God. That's powerful. I think that was everyone or almost everyone. John, having written his gospel last, had time to reflect on what he had experienced with Jesus and after Jesus, and he had time to reflect on what others had said. And so John wrote the, the last of the Gospels, and, and that's the picture that we, we took, they took of him before he passed away. No, I'm kidding. So John, this is our depiction of John, a, a wise man. He was the oldest of the disciples uh, to live the longest. And uh, his, from his opening statement to his final remarks, John seems motivated by the importance of Jesus' mission on earth, and he uses great illustration. Kristen went through the different word pictures that John used to describe Jesus, and uh, he, pointing out that Jesus was the only one could, who could fulfill what he fulfilled. Mark's viewpoint on Jesus was for us to know that Jesus was a servant. And Mark wrote the first gospel account, he was the first one to pen some kind of story about Jesus, and he provided the Roman audience uh, with a really quick, fact-filled version coming from the perspective of Peter. And so Kristen talked about Mark and his life and how he came to write, and he was really a young man uh, when Jesus was alive. He uh, could have been involved uh, with Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. There uh, seems to be a scripture in Mark that indicates he might have been the young man that is mentioned in Mark. And then there was 
the idea that Mark wanted us to know that Jesus was a servant. He was a servant. And he specifically was pointing out the power of the cross. And I thank God for Mark's description of the cross. Last week, Luke's viewpoint was to make sure we understood that Jesus was a man. Luke gives us the accounts of Mary, the mother of Jesus. He gave us others' accounts, showing us in great detail that Jesus was not a myth, but that he was an actual historical figure. He was a man. He also made sure to know, for us to know that Jesus loved the outsider and the outcast. And ultimately, Luke wanted us to see how the perfect man, Jesus Christ, connected to every believer through his death, burial, and resurrection. And I'm so thankful he pointed us, Luke pointed us to the power of obedience to the gospel through repentance, forgiveness of sins, and the promise of the Father. Now I want to consider the final gospel in our series, and that is the gospel that is written by Matthew. And so let us first consider the man, Matthew. And I have three key points that I want you to understand about the man, Matthew. First off, Matthew was a Jew. He, his given name was Levi, and most likely his family was from the lineage of Levi, which was the, the, of the lineage of the priest, so he would have come through a, maybe a priestly line. He was very Jewish. And Levi or Matthew would have been accustomed to temple life. Now, I'm going to tell you some points about Matthew that I, I, I find through the whole thing tonight. I'm going to keep coming back to some of this because it's, it's to me, Matthew's probably one of my favorite Stories when it comes to characters who wrote the gospel, and, and partly because I share his name. But uh, my middle name's Matthew. But he was from a Jewish life. He was from a Jewish life, and this is important because at five years old, he would have been taught the scriptures. At 10 years old, he would have begun to understand the, the law and the interpretations of the Torah. At 13, he would have begun to fulfill the commandments of the law at 15 he would have maybe started making his own interpretations of what the law meant and if he was going to be married he would have entered into this covenant around 18 years old and at 20 he would have begun uh, some type of vocation and so Matthew was a Jew so this brings us to our second point about Matthew that is vital to really getting the full view of the gospel according to Matthew. At some point in Matthew's early life, I don't know if it was as a teenager or as he was turning 18, 19, at some point in Matthew's life, he was turned off by the Jewish life in the Jewish culture. We know that because Matthew, also known as we mentioned Levi, becomes a tax collector. Maybe he, it was that he saw the hypocrisy of the religious system. Maybe he saw the Jewish people being raked over the coals for money by the priest. It could have been that he felt that they were being dishonest. We know that Scripture 
calls the, the, Jesus would call the priests of that day thieves and robbers. So there was something that he might have seen that really turned him off to Jewish culture. And, and so at an early age, most likely, his hypocritical view of the priest and the religious system, coupled with maybe his own entrepreneurial initiative or intuition, allowed him to cross the proverbial Rubicon of cultural ideology as he would himself look to grab a piece of the financial pie. And we know, we, we don't know why he did it, but we know that he became a tax collector. And I'm going to walk through this a little bit with you because I think it's just important to understand his background a little bit. And I've shared some of this before. But let's consider the culture by which Matthew would have become a tax collector. Whether passing through a bustling town or a quiet country village or a bumpy hillside road or along a well-worn flat highway, there was one sight and scene that would create intense negative emotion for a traveling Jew during the time of Christ. The mere sight of a tax collector set up in a tax booth or an office along the way would probably have created a flash of resentment for the Jews making their journey. These detested politicians, as they were called in the Bible, would literally rattle the emotional state of these Jewish people. And they would create hostility amongst the calmest of Jewish leaders. These intruders of peace, these executors of extortion, would be even more hated if the publican, if the tax collector were of Jewish descent. It was a slap in the face to the Jews for a Jew to become a tax collector. It would have created a vexation that was almost unfathomable. It would have been road rage on steroids. The publican, the tax collector, was the symbol of Israel's subjection to foreign domination. As appalling as it was, that probably did not cause the greatest of loathing. The bitter hatred of the rabbis towards the class of tax collectors was clearly understood. They hated the tax collectors. They hated first the idea of being under the Roman oppression, but then they even hated those who would take the tax from them. And it's kind of like we don't celebrate. We have some in our church who work for the IRS, but we don't have a special day or retired from the IRS But we don't have a special day to celebrate them other than tax day when the government's supposed to give us money back. But these exactors of Roman taxes were so utterly shameless, merciless, and fraudulent in their unconscientious dealings. They were crooks. They were crooks. And Roman taxation, which weighed heavy on Israel during the time of Christ with such crushing weight, was a symbolic, cruel, and relentless life. Everything was taxed. Now, you might feel like everything in our life is taxed, but here's, here's just the slight difference that, that I see. 
And it's just maybe a human. Now, we all hate taxes, okay? We all hate taxes. So I'm not going to stand here and vouch taxes, do some wonderful things, whatever. Okay, that's my political speech. But everything was, was taxed. But it wasn't automatically calculated for you and received by the clerk, and then the business owner was supposed to then pay the tax. It was one person or one group who they taxed everything, property, income, ground tax, your agriculture, anything you grew from the ground, the the census, everything was taxed according to how many people were in your family, imports were taxed, exports were taxed, traveling on certain roads were taxed, bridges and, and all of this were taxed, much like what we have today, except it was one group who was doing it. And they were, in some ways, without accountability. And so to avoid all possible loss to the treasury, the Roman government would take a regular census and they would show the the population and they would show the wealth of the population and then they would begin to exact tax. And so it was the role of the tax collector on behalf of the Roman government to take taxes. Now, it was such a point of contention for Jews and rabbis that they wrestled out the question that, ironically, even Matthew records. Think about this. Now, Matthew, the tax collector, records this question in his gospel. It's the question that the Jews would pose to Jesus. Now, tell us what you think about this. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They were looking for a loophole like we look for loopholes. All right, enough said. The Romans had a unique way of collecting these taxes, though. Now, without, I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. There's a a government uh, system that they had in place, and basically, the government wasn't allowed to be the person taxing. They weren't the ones who were going out and collecting the taxes. They would hire, they would hire these uh, individuals to collect the tax, but these politicians would form these kind of joint stock companies where they would buy a particular province and then they were going to buy that and then get all the revenue from the taxes for that particular province or area. And so they were uh, known as Roman knights or owners of taxing companies. And then these publicans or these tax collectors are the ones who would actually go out and they would be the ones knocking on the door, standing in the roadways, standing at points of entry or, or, or different areas, and they would be the one making people stop what they were doing, unload their stuff, look at everything, you owe tax on this, 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 and they were the ones collecting the tax, and then they would take their cut, then they would pass along the cut to whoever the government officials who owned the taxing companies would give. So, the, or, or owned the taxing companies, they would get their cut as well. And so, they, they were hated. They were absolutely hated. And so, the person tilling the ground or the tradesman or the producer of goods were constantly exposed to these taxes. The caravans, the peddlers, the travelers, everybody was being taxed. Everything was being unloaded, and it tested the patience of those Jews. Every Jew was tested by it because most often the tax collectors were going to be dishonest about how much was actually owed. 
and they knew that they had the full weight of the Roman government behind them. Think about the power that rested in those tax collectors, that they knew that they were going to be able to strong arm anybody. Now, there was an appeals process that was alive. They could appeal to the judges. So a person could say, hey, I don't owe that tax, and we, they could appeal to the judges. But the problem was the judges belonged to this same group of Roman knights. They also were involved. They also were getting their own piece of the pie, so to speak. So it wasn't a, a, a real good scenario for the person being taxed. And so they would tax and tax, and even the tax collectors would even give out a loan. If you couldn't afford the tax, they would offer you, hey, I'll, I'll let you slide, I'll give you a loan for it. But then they would come back, and they would often be very violent, and would, uh, and the scripture talks about that. I don't have time to get into that, but if you read Matthew 18, 28, there's a parable that talks about this same scenario. And again, interestingly enough, Matthew is the one that records this parable. So when you were a publican, when you were a tax collector, there was a stigma placed on you. Like a convicted rapist or murderer, you were despised. Jesus would even state this. Jesus would even state this. And who wrote it? Matthew. Matthew 18, verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Great, great words, Jesus. You could have stopped there. But he continues, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen. And a tax collector. Come on, Jesus. I just see Matthew standing there like, oh, come on. I mean, you could have just stopped with heathen, but you had to throw tax collector. Everybody knows I was a former tax collector. And so reminds us not to be so easily offended by the word of God. That Matthew was able to write that. But tax collection was corrupt. It was oppressive. It was violent. It was vulgar. To the Jew, it was not the lowest of occupations, but it was the lowest of sins. It was the lowest of sins. There was a tax checkpoint to the west. There was a tax checkpoint to the west of of Jerusalem in Capernaum along the Sea of Galilee. There was another one in Jericho that was east of Jerusalem. And there the publicans would sit. There the tax collectors would sit along the road. And they would take tax. Anybody coming up from the sea, I'm going to tax that. Anything coming down the road, I'm going to tax that. And so they waited for their next crooked or their next victim. And they were just consistently crooked in their dealings. And so if the tax collector, the sight of a tax collector wasn't enough, there would often be, they say, a Roman soldier who would stand behind the tax collector to make sure that the people knew that the Roman government stood with the tax collector and would enforce the taxation. So not only is Matthew a Jew, but he is a tax 
collector. This is a problem. This is a problem. Here, and we find the third and final consideration for the man, Matthew. Matthew was a follower of Jesus. Regardless that he ended up in the despised position as a Jew and a tax collector, Jesus, think about this now, Jesus invites him this complete, utter, outsider, and even outcast to Jewish culture. Jesus tells Matthew, come follow me. This was not just, hey, let's take a little road trip together or, hey, join this club. This was a commitment of a lifetime. If he was going to be a follower of Jesus, Matthew was going to commit his life to following Jesus. And this is important because Jesus decides to invite Matthew to join him. And this decision to follow a rabbi as a student or disciple was not a flighty decision. Again, I'm going to come back to this and, and I'm, going to, I'm going to bring this all to a, a conclusion tonight. But I, I want you to understand what's happening here. Matthew, this guy who's an outsider, this guy who's hated by Jewish culture, is now being invited by Jesus, who he knows as what? A rabbi and a teacher. At this point, he knows him as a rabbi and teacher. And Jesus, this rabbi, is inviting this Jewish outcast to join him. Why is this so important? Because it meant, it meant that the student was, uh, uh, a man was being invited to not just hear a rabbi, but he's being invited to be a rabbi. And the opportunity to become a student of a rabbi was centered on one central purpose, and it was given to only students. You weren't invited to be a rabbi unless the rabbi thought you had potential. And it was marked by three clear potential distinctions. First, could the student follow and learn from the rabbi? Did the student have the capacity to learn from the rabbi? Number two, could the student follow and learn and assimilate into the community of students? So it wasn't a one-on-one thing with Jesus. Matthew was going to have to assimilate into this group of students in the community. And then could the student become a rabbi? There would be no purpose for a rabbi to invite somebody to be a student if that student could never be a rabbi. So it was quite an invitation for Jesus to invite Matthew to be, to follow him because he was helping him to understand that I see potential in you. And so as we find these distinct, this this opportunity that, that Jesus gave Matthew, we find distinct opportunities for us, and I want to quickly point these out for you. This invitation of Jesus to Matthew speaks to us. Jesus invites, number one, Matthew to be a follower. Like Matthew, God calls us in our weaknesses. God's not afraid of our weaknesses. God calls us in our worst. He calls us out in our worst. In our worst, he comes and he meets with us. In our worst, he sits with us. In our worst, he talks with us. In our worst, he sees our best. Are you thankful for that about the Lord? 
That he's not afraid of what you've done. He's not afraid of what you've walked away from. That he can still speak purpose into your life. But Jesus invites Matthew to be a part of a community of faith. Not only was God calling Matthew to be a disciple, he was joining him to other disciples who may or may not have liked him prior to his joining the group. As I mentioned before, there is archaeological evidence that fish taken from the Sea of Galilee were taxed. So when Jesus took Matthew, it's, it's possible that he took Matthew as his disciple. He brought him to this group, Peter, James, and John. Said, hey, this is Matthew, Peter, James, and John. This is Matthew, so forth. And probably they would have been, yeah, I know who he is. He, he taxed us. Yeah, we caught some fish, and he exacted some taxes on it. We know Matthew. Yeah, we know him. We know him pretty well. I, I, it probably made for some awkward introductions because they would have hated. They would have hated him. It would have been better almost if Jesus would have brought a Gentile into the disciples, but he brought a tax collector and so we see that. We see that. You know what? We probably wouldn't be friends tonight if it weren't for the Lord. Our society proves it. Everybody's got a bias. Everybody's got a hatred. But it's the cross. It's Jesus Christ that tears all that down and says, you know what? Nobody, nobody is good by themselves. Nobody's got the corner. No culture has the corner on, on, on what they should do. It's only at the cross that, that cultures are able to meld and to mend. Amen. And so Matthew, Jesus shows us, and he invites Matthew into this community just as he invites us into a community. I'm, community. I'm thankful that Calvary is multicultural, multiethnic, multilingual, multigenerational. Amen. Amen. And we're going to continue to do that and strive for that. So here, Jesus invites him not to just be a follower, but to be in community. So Matthew, who, becomes, who became disenchanted with religion because of its unflinching hypocrisy, becomes one of the most prolific writers on the life of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Now I want to consider quickly what he wrote. First, let's take a look at the arrangement of the gospel. And if you have notes, I hope you're taking notes, you're looking at your Bible. And uh, let's take a look at this. First, we realize that Matthew's gospel is very well organized. As a tax collector, Matthew was used to keeping records. And he was a personal companion of Jesus through most of Jesus' public ministry. Some have suggested that Matthew's version of the life of Jesus was mainly a rearrangement of Mark's quick, fact-filled gospel. Matthew wanted to arrange his gospel in a way that was more structured 
more attractive, and this third word is important, more teachable. All right, so he was looking at an audience of mainly Jews. We'll talk about that in a minute, but he wanted this gospel, this writings, and Mark wrote first, but Matthew took Mark's writings and he tried to structure it in a way that was, that was better understood by his audience. And so quickly, when we compare Mark and Matthew, whereas Jesus seemed to be in a hurry in Mark's gospel account, Matthew depicts Jesus' ministry as more subdued. It was a more subdued pace, more clearly showing his role as rabbi and teacher. Not to oversimplify this, but Mark shows Jesus as a man of action. He's the servant. Matthew shows Jesus primarily, in a lot of ways, I should say, as a man of words. Mark shows him as a man of action. Jesus show, or Matthew shows him as a man of words. Matthew wants to show Jesus as a rabbi and a teacher. But a teacher who taught as one having authority and power. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29 Watch what it says. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So he distinguishes Jesus in that regard. Matthew writes this, that he was not just a teacher, but he had authority. And we're going to show you that he he saw Jesus as the Messiah and wanted to explain Jesus as the Messiah. So In spite of his own disconnection, and this is what's profound to me, in spite of his own disconnection from Jewish law and Jewish life, Matthew would go on to connect Christ to the Jewish law and Jewish life in a profound way. Now, he would have grown up Jewish and then turned his back on Judaism. And so he understood the Jewish law. He understood the Jewish customs. And he wanted the reader to see Christ as the Messiah spoken of in the Old Testament. Matthew wanted Christ to be seen as the Messiah in the Old Testament. And what we realize when you read Matthew, Matthew assumes that the reader is well acquainted with Jewish ways. So if you're going to read the book of Matthew, you're going to have to maybe do a little bit of study on Jewish history to completely understand where Matthew is trying to come from. And so we realize that Matthew quotes the Old Testament. Matthew quotes the Old Testament 99 times in his Gospels or in his gospel, more than all the other gospels combined. Matthew quotes the Old Testament. However, he did not feel the need to digress to enlighten his readers about Jewish tradition. So he didn't spend his time going over when he's quoting the Old Testament. He's not trying to connect those dots. He's assuming that his reader knows Jewish uh, custom and law. And so his readers would have been interested in how Jesus' teachings expressed continuity or discontinuity with Jewish Judaism and its sacred scriptures. So did this new teacher, Matthew's trying to answer this question, did this new teacher come to affirm or do away with Jewish scripture? Did Jesus try to uphold or abolish the cherished laws or oracles or traditions of Israel? And so these critical issues were paramount to Matthew's understanding 
of Jesus. Matthew, who had grown up knowing the law, was now transformed by his encounter with Jesus. And here's a quote that I'll put on the screen. Matthew passionately believed Jesus was the direction, the goal, the climax, the embodiment of all the law and prophets had meant to accomplish. All that the law and prophets had meant to accomplish. Jesus was the fulfillment of that. And he's speaking that to a Jewish audience. For Matthew, Jesus was a righteous man, Matthew 3.15. And he was Emmanuel, God with us, Matthew 1, who had not come with the intent to destroy but to fulfill the, the Israel's sacred text of Matthew chapter 5. And so you can read through Matthew his connection to the Old Testament. But at the same time, not only is he speaking to a Jewish audience, at the same time, Matthew uh, was not resistant or impervious to the Gentile seekers as well. He had worked for the Roman state and obviously had frequently interacted with many pagans living in, quote-unquote, as he mentions, the Galilee of the Gentiles in Matthew chapter 4. His opening genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 which demonstrated that Jesus was descended from Jewish royal lineage. And he takes the genealogy. Luke, remember, takes it all the way to Adam to say he was a man. Matthew is going to take it back to Abraham to point out his Jewish connection, right? He comes through that. But interestingly enough, Matthew adds a few Gentiles to the genealogy, and he adds a few women to the genealogy. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth were inserted into his genealogy. And so he's not being deaf to the Roman uh, or the Gentile seeker. Matthew is also the one to point out Jesus' awe, and I think this is interesting. He, he points out the response of Jesus to the Roman centurion. It's Matthew who describes that Jesus says to the Roman centurion, you have such great faith that had not been encountered anywhere in Israel, Matthew chapter 8. He points out that the Roman centurion had great faith. And so quickly, of the four Gospels, Matthew is noted for his methodical and scrupulous concern for arrangement. He was very particular about how he arranged the book of Matthew. And that's not to say that the other writers were sloppy. We talked about Luke and his use of language and his use of detail. But Matthew was being very particular about his arrangement. And the gospel is really, of Matthew is really brilliantly constructed and they, that scholars say, is exceptional in how it is lined out. It's, and here's the point. He renders it easily, so it's easily taught. Matthew is presenting the gospel his gospel to that Jewish audience, so that it can be easily taught. We'll finish with that. Along with opening and closing sections, Matthew 1 and Matthew 26 through 28, Matthew organized his gospel around five major discourses, so five major teachings of Jesus. The first is the Sermon on the Mount. And that's a great passage. I, we don't have any time to even dive into any of these. But 
great, great passages, the Sermon on the Mount. Then there was the commissioning of the 12 apostles, then the kingdom parables, then humility, a discourse on humility, and a discourse on the end time uh, of the world. And so these are uh, five, five key discourses that Matthew inserts. And some uh, scholars think he might have been trying to implore the use of the, the setup of the Torah in that there were five books to the, the Torah and he was trying to mimic that in some way. But each of these discourses closes with a statement like this. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings. This statement was then usually followed by the deeds that Jesus would do. So he's showing a teaching, and then he's going to show what this rabbi did. He's going to show what the rabbi taught, then he's going to show what the rabbi did. And it's this back and forth in the book of Matthew. And so, again, he's showing that obviously he, Jesus was teaching on various subjects, but Jesus also had power and authority. And so when I understand, as I conclude tonight, when I understand who Matthew was, where he came from, and Jesus' decision to invite him to be a follower, I find it very intriguing how Matthew writes his gospel and specifically how Matthew ends his gospel. When Luke writes the story of how Matthew was chosen to be a follower, when Luke writes this, Luke says this, After these things, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. He emphasizes that Jesus saw a tax collector. He saw a tax collector that was formerly a Jewish man. He would have pointed out, and I don't think it was wrong for him to point out, but Luke was pointing out he would have been a betrayer of Jewish culture. He would have been a publican with no connection to God, no connection to community of faith, and no purpose. He would have just been really seen as a criminal. He he had no dealings. That's what Luke is helping us understand. However, when Matthew writes about this story and he is writing about himself, he describes it this way. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said, follow me. So he arose and followed him. You see, Luke writes as really man sees it. Luke wrote it as we see it. He was a tax collector. He was a criminal. Matthew writes it as God sees it. I see a man. I don't see a tax collector. I see a man. A man not defined by his doubts. A man not defined by his waywardness. A man not defined by his insecurity and uncertainty. A man not defined by those things. But a man who still has an opportunity to connect to God. A man who still has an opportunity to connect to others, and a man who still has an opportunity to connect to his purpose. So instead of identifying him as Levi, Matthew records that God changed his name to Matthew, meaning gift of God. Aren't you thankful that God can change our name? Doesn't hold us accountable for what we've done, 
He can write, rewrite our story. And I see this in Matthew because when Jesus invited Matthew to follow him three and a half years prior to Matthew's final words, Matthew was not just being invited to follow a man around. Matthew realized that the invitation was much broader than this, and it would be the Messiah's invitation. It wasn't just man's invitation. It wasn't just a rabbi's invitation. It was a Messiah's invitation. And so I conclude tonight by reading Matthew 28, 16, starting at 16. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I just wonder, this is no, no, no scholar, but I wonder if Matthew's inserting himself there. I don't know if he is. But he knew of somebody that was doubting. Maybe it was Thomas. That's most likely. <laughs> and I've, I've secured both names, so doubting Thomas Matthew. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. But what does he say? Go, therefore. Matthew, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Make disciples, Matthew, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age Amen, period, close the book. That's how Matthew ends his gospel. That this one who invited him to follow him as an outcast now said, listen, I'm putting the whole weight of the gospel in your hands. I trust you that much, Matthew. What a statement Matthew records. That Jesus would trust us. Jesus would trust us with his gospel. He would trust us to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Isn't that powerful? Matthew, this one who had given us, given up his right to be a teacher and rabbi at some age and said, I'm throwing in the towel. I'm just going to become a tax collector, make some money. Now, all of a sudden, God says, I'm not done. You do have a chance to be a teacher. And that's the last words that Matthew records, that Matthew would be entrusted to make disciples just as Jesus had. Jesus was not just inviting him to a relationship with himself or with others. He was inviting him to a relationship with purpose. And the whole point of Jesus Christ in the gospel is not just so that we can have a one-on-one relationship with him. That's great. You need a one-on-one relationship with Jesus. You need a one-on-one relationship with the community of faith. You need a one-on-one, or you need relationship with one another. But Jesus said, you need to go, therefore, and make disciples. This is God's call in our life. This is God's call in our life. And so, as we conclude this series, and we've looked at the Gospels, I want to ask you a few questions for our at time tonight. 
So hopefully you're sitting next to somebody. I've heard that, that because we do app time, that it changes where people sit. I don't know what that means. I don't know. Don't be afraid to share, I guess, with others. But two questions. How do you most relate with the man, Matthew? How do you most relate with the man, Matthew? Or who has helped disciple you? Think about it. Who helped disciple you, and how did they do it? How did they do it? All right, are you ready? Do we have uh, music yet for app time? Not yet. We're still working on it. We're still creating it. It's coming sooner or later. We're going to have music. It might sound a little bit like Jeopardy, I hear. That's, I don't know. So how do you most relate with the man, the man Matthew, or who has helped disciple you? How have they done it? You got one minute. You got one minute. All right, so talk to somebody. Make sure you're, you're not alone tonight. All right. Well, why don't you stand? I hope that through this gospel series, I hope that, number one, you maybe learned something about a particular book or a particular character maybe you hadn't thought of. But I hope you can identify. I hope you can identify with what you've heard. If you didn't get a chance to listen to any of them, how you doing? Come on. You want to come up here? You can come up here. So we're, we need Josh and Makisho. That's who we need right now. All right. They're not in here, baby. Oh, there she is. All right. Everyone give Keisha a hand. So glad she's here. And there she goes. There she goes. She gone. <laughs> yes. Come on up. Come on up. All right. Come on. All right. Here, can... Can I hold you? All right. It's a game of chase. Are the cameras following? We need the cameras following. All right. So what did you learn about? What did you learn about? Let me see. All right. Paul goes to Athens, so that's good. Paul goes to Athens. All right. Well, let's pray. We're Hopefully, you learned something and she learned something tonight. So... Let's just uh, thank God for his goodness to us. God, we love you today. We thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your mercy that endures forever. Thank you, God, as we look through the Gospels tonight, that you, God, can show us, Lord, that, that we, even if we, we haven't figured everything out, that you're still leading and you're still guiding. I thank you for your word that brings clarity to our lives. Thank you, God, for the work that you accomplished on the cross that we read about in the Gospels, Lord, but not just read about in the Gospels that we have experienced. God, we have experienced the power of repentance. We have experienced the power of baptism in your name for the remission of sins. We have experienced the infilling of your spirit, the promise of the Father. Lord, I thank you for the Gospel message. I thank you for what we can find in your word. In the name of Jesus, everyone said amen. This podcast was brought to you by the Calvary Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information about the Calvary Church, please visit our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Consider joining us for a service where you will find friendly people, high-energy music, and life-transforming preaching and teaching from a biblical worldview. 
you can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or on our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.